Go ahead and open your Bibles up to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 7. The title of the message today is How to Build a Glorious Church. The series is called Glory in the Church. We're going to see today how Jesus has been assembling his church for the last 2,000 years. I'm always amazed at what it takes to assemble something. I found a picture of a, I think it's a VW Golf, and all of the parts that go into assembling this vehicle. So check it out. This is a picture, and all of those pieces have to go in the right spot for the thing to get you anywhere. I I struggle with furniture assembly, so you don't want me working on that. But look, assembling a church is like so much more complicated than putting even a car together, because you're talking about living, breathing people across the world at different periods in history, and Jesus is building his church, and it is glorious. So today we're going to see how Jesus is assembling his church. Uh, We're going to look at how he assembled it at the beginning and how he's still assembling it today. This is a very fitting topic because as the church is regathering, churches are regathering all around the world, it's like Jesus is reassembling us. He's bringing us back together. There's one key question that we're going to be looking at throughout the morning. You can write this down. The key question is this. How can we become a church filled with the love, faith, and power of Christ? Throughout the book of Ephesians, we see that Jesus is building these three, among others, these three huge components into every healthy church. Love, he wants it to be loving. Faith, he wants it to be faithful. And power, he wants it to be strong. Hey, we don't want to be a cold, heartless church, do we? We don't want to be a doubtful, faithless church, right? We don't want to be a weak, undisciplined, wobbly group, right? No, we want Jesus to make us strong and faithful and loving, and then we will be a glorious church. And so we're going to learn about how he's building us into a glorious church today. Let's pray, and then we'll get into the word together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are building your church. We thank you that we can partner with you in this effort, that it's not entirely up to us. You didn't just leave us alone with instructions. You are hard at work in each one of us and together in our community. So give us a vision. Show us what you're building. Show us how we can become a healthy, strong, loving, vibrant, faithful church. And we pray this all by your spirit for your glory. Amen. Okay, I hope your Bible is open to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. And let's read what the Apostle Paul continues to say there. He says this, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. All right, now before we get to how he built the church, the Apostle Paul talks about who Jesus is and what he is doing. And he, he does this by quoting back to Psalm sixty-eight eighteen. So if this sounds a little confusing, track with me here. He says in verse 7 that grace is given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. He pictures Christ as having these gifts to give to everyone who is a part of his church. Those gifts specifically are spiritual gifts in this passage. There are many other blessings that come, but here Paul's referring to the spiritual gifts that he gives to each believer for the building up of the church. Then he reaches back to the Old Testament and he quotes this psalm. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. 
Now, if you look back at that psalm, what Psalm 68 deals with is the victory of God in the Old Testament as he led his people out of bondage in Egypt, away from Sinai, and into the land of promise. The idea there was God was ascending a mountain of victory, and he was giving his people strength and glory because he led them triumphantly. So here's a picture of the Red Sea. You remember when Moses led the people out of Egypt, it was a great victory over the Pharaoh and his army, and then even as Joshua led them, you know, through the conquest, God gave the people victory. And so it talks about it in the psalm as, be, as God uh, being the victor and, and his people boasting in that victory. So now Paul is applying that in the New Testament to Jesus. Just like God in the Old Testament led the people out of slavery through the waters of death into the land of promise, so Jesus does the same thing. Here's a picture of the nativity. Jesus came down from heaven and he came, and when the Apostle Paul here talks about how he descended, the best interpretation of that is he came down. He came down from heaven, and we all celebrate Christmas, right? We know all the songs, and that's a wonderful day when Jesus arrived from heaven to earth, but he came to die on the cross to achieve a great victory. So here's a picture of the cross, and what did Jesus do? He defeated death. He released us from sin why? To lead us into a land of promise. And then on the third day, he rose again. And here's a picture of uh, the, the observed garden tomb. They don't know if this was the actual tomb where Jesus was buried, but this is probably what it looked like. And, and on the third day, he rose again in glory and in triumph. And then he ascended to the heavens on high, where he now rules heaven and earth. So you can see how Paul's grabbing that Old Testament imagery of the deliverance of the people and saying, Jesus did that. Jesus conquered death. Jesus freed us from slavery. And now he has gifts of triumph to give to who? To his church. It's a wonderful picture of how becoming a member of the church, uh, becoming a member of Jesus' kingdom, uh, gives us great power and glory because he has transcended all. So how can we become a church filled with the love, faith, and power of Christ? Well, it, it begins when you realize who Jesus is. Only Jesus came into the world to die on the cross, to defeat sin and death, to rise again, and to rule heaven and earth. And listen, is Jesus your Savior and your Lord? Have you surrendered all to him? If so, he has empowered you with spiritual gifts so that you could become someone who's helping to build up his church for his glory. Now, we look back then, from this point on, Paul talks about how Jesus got the building project started. And in verse 11, it says this, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And we're kind of pausing mid-sentence there because there's a ton in there, and we want to look at how the church got started. So we're going to write down, since Jesus rules the world and he's building a kingdom, how did he actually get the whole thing started? Well, write this down, number one. The apostles were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. The apostles were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And that means they saw the risen Lord, and so they shared firsthand testimony that Jesus rose from the grave. They traveled around with a message. The message was a person. In fact, in Colossians, Paul says, Him we proclaim. He is the message. The Messiah is the message. He also talks about how he carries in his, in his body the body of Christ, meaning the resurrection, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is the gospel. So the apostles were the witnesses of the resurrection. They traveled all around the world. They planted churches. 
You know this story, right? There were 12 of them. And Judas, the traitor, turned on Jesus, betrayed him with a kiss, right? Died, hung himself after he did that. Paul later came on to become one of the 12 that that grew to 13. He called himself an apostle abnormally born because he saw the risen Lord, right, on the road to Damascus, but it happened later. But he was still an apostle, an eyewitness of the Lord. Jesus said to them, you will be my witnesses. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They were commissioned with the Great Commission to go and make disciples. They were pillars in the early church. I mean, they were powerhouses. They had so much power to heal and raise the dead and write scripture. And when you look at the apostles, you're like, wait a minute, the Bible says their names are going to be written on the foundation of heaven? That's pretty awesome. But if you know anything about your Bible, and if you've read the story of these men, you're probably like, wait a minute, them? Them. Like, they were chosen to be the apostles? You're talking about Paul the murderer who killed Christians? You're talking about Thomas the doubter who didn't even believe it until he saw with his own eyes and touched with his own hand? You're talking about the hotheads James and John? That's these apostles? You're talking about Matthew the crooked tax collector and Simon the bloodthirsty zealot who endorsed violence and revolution against the Roman Empire? Wait, these? These are the apostles? This is the plan? I mean, let's face it, these guys had no chance of working together, let alone changing the world. There was nothing special about them. Archaeologists, you might not know this, actually found a picture of the apostles recently. They dug it up near Jerusalem. I'm going to show it to you. Here's a picture of the original apostles. (laughs) That's not them. But the joke is, them? Like, they're a joke. They're a joke. These are the Sandlot baseball kids, if you haven't seen the movie. They're like a joke. They're like, they're, they're like, they're going to do it. They're going to win. They're going to work together. But here's the thing. The original apostles were a joke. They had no chance. They were up against Rome and, the, and, and Jerusalem and Israel and the gover- government there. And yet Jesus filled them with what? With love. He filled them with faith. He filled them with power, and they could not be stopped. And that's the truth today. God's going to use ordinary people like you and me who have no chance against the world. People who there's nothing spectacular about us. People who others know our story in the past, and they're like, him? Her? Huh? That's the point. And because of that, Jesus gets the glory. One of the most powerful books I read was by John MacArthur, and it's called 12 Ordinary Men. Here's a picture of the cover. If you're looking for something to read, 12 Ordinary Men, uh, Pastor MacArthur said that this was one of his most requested sermon series when he preached it because he talked about each individual apostle one at a time and just talked about how human they were and and how, how fallen they were and how fragile and faithless they were, and yet Jesus used them, the apostles, to build his church. Now, when it comes to the apostles In the Bible, uh, whenever the Bible uses kind of the uh, capital A word for apostle, it means that they had the office of apostle. These were people who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection, who had authority directly from the Lord to establish the church. Now, the, the Bible also uses the word with kind of a lowercase a, like apostles, like they, they were in the group, but they weren't the apostles. It's important to make that distinction 
because there are people today who are called to be apostles in the lowercase sense of the word. What does that mean? Well, you can write this down. Today, apostles are sent out. That's basically what the word means, a messenger who's sent out. Sent out to establish churches and reach the nations. That's what apostles do. And it's a spiritual gift through the Holy Spirit that still operates today. Anybody who is a missionary or a church planter or a denominational overseer or a missions director, these would, be, these would fit within the gift of the apostle today. They don't have the authority to write Bible books, but they have the same basic gifting from God's Holy Spirit. So we have many people who share this gifting who we partner with. Some of our missionary friends uh, who we're blessed to know and support and serve with would be Mike Dawson. Uh, he serves in Venezuela, the rainforest of the Amazon, and I would never want to encounter that fish. He lives in the jungle, very primitive and reaches primitive people. Uh, and the next picture is the Croslands. They serve with Wycliffe Bible translators. This is an old picture of them when their kids were all young. Uh, and they, they serve in helping to provide people in uh, Papua New Guinea with Bible translations. So we help them as they've gone and surrendered this part of their life, this season of their life, for that mission. We're a part of a church planting network called GCC. And GCC has 125 churches in 22 countries. Here's a picture of uh, me and uh, Mike Kiowski at the Global Summit. Pastor Alex is there, who we partner with from Kiev. Dave Harvey is the, uh, is the president right now in the background. So many precious friends and relationships here. People we know from India and from Romania, from Scotland, from Canada, uh, from, from all over the Caribbean. Uh, and we've got great relationships with these people because we are planting churches together. And that's a, that's a work of an apostle. We're sending out people to establish new churches. So today apostles are sent out to establish churches and reach the nations. Personally, our church sent out Pastor Brandon to Rochester, New York several years ago. Here's a picture of his church. They meet in a comedy club. This is what church planning is like. Here's a picture from one of their baptism services. They baptize people in a trough. You know, we had to, we used an inflatable pool once, but we're starting new works. We're sending out uh, pastors to plant churches, and that fits within that description, that category of apostles. And maybe, maybe in your heart, you or someone you know has sensed a calling into this wonderful opportunity. Maybe you feel your, your spirit has been stirred up to, to go, to be sent out as a missionary uh, or to work for a denomination, or to plant a church. And whether you're young or old, it's important if you feel God calling you to explore that, to start talking about it. We all know what happened to Jonah when he ran from a calling, and God's got many whales that could swallow you up. So it's important to discern, because God is still raising up workers to go out. So number one, the apostles were eyewitnesses of the resurrection, and they were sent out to establish churches and to reach the nations. Number two, jot this down, prophets spoke a message from God. It says the apostles and the prophets. Prophets spoke a message from God. Uh, prophets are known in the Bible for revealing the future, right? They can tell the future, but that's not all that they do. They actually speak for God in uh, past, present, and future tense. So the prophets would declare a word in the present. They could uh, share something about the present and offer some encouragement or a warning uh, that tied into that very moment, something that was happening right then and there. Um, there was also prophets who would point back to the warnings and promises God had made to the past, and they would, they would remind God's people about the past promises God had made. Uh, and yes, prophets could predict the future, and they could tell a famine was coming, 
or, or people should flee because they're going to go to jail or whatever, but there was prophets could predict the future and encourage and warn people uh, from God. Now, in the New Testament, the gift of prophecy was different from the Old. Of course, you know, in the Old Testament, great prophets, right? Famous prophets like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, they wrote whole books of the Bible. They, they told the future hundreds of years into the future, right? Uh, and the rule in the Old Testament was, if you uttered a prophecy and it didn't come true, you were sentenced to death. Um, in the New Testament, it's a little different because that kind of authority that the Old Testament prophets had was actually given to the apostles. The I speak for God, but not to all the prophets in general. So if prophecy was used in the New Testament church, they, they, they actually made it clear that those people didn't have authority that trumps the apostles. So we have to be careful when we look at how prophecy was used in the New Testament. But it was a gift, and it is a speaking gift, and it's something that we have to realize was instrumental in establishing the early church. They didn't have the full Bible. They didn't have much of the Bible yet. So prophets were very important to encourage, to teach, and also to warn the church from, from early on. In the New Testament, we uh, learn in the book of Acts about prophets like Agabus, um, you know, and uh, Philip, the evangelist, had four daughters who were unmarried. They uh, prophesied. The Apostle Paul, when he was about to go to jail in Jerusalem, he said, the Holy Spirit warns me in every town that prison awaits me. So there were people in every town who were telling him words from God that were about to come true. So prophecy was very important um, back then. John the Baptist was a prophet, the forerunner of Christ. And uh, we also have to see that these, these gifts obviously overlap. So the Apostle John, for example, was an apostle, but he was also a prophet. He wrote the book of Revelation, right? And he told us how the world was going to end. So he's kind of both. Um, and so the Apostle John would be an example of a New Testament prophet, but there was also like Agabus was in the New Testament. He predicted, you know, things in the future, but he wasn't an apostle. So he had the gift, but he didn't have that office of an apostle. Philip the evangelist had four daughters. They were all, they all prophesied. And just one example of how prophecy was used to strengthen and protect the New Testament church, the apostle Paul said when he was on his way to jail in Jerusalem, he said, in every town the Holy Spirit warns me of persecutions to come. So that gift was active in every city. Someone was telling him, hey, here's what's about to happen to you. So prophets spoke uh, a message from God and they helped to establish the church. But write this down because we've got to be clear on this gift. All prophecy must be tested by Scripture, presented clearly, and evaluated under church authority. This is the rules of New Testament prophecy. Uh, today there is a tremendous amount of confusion um, surrounding this gift and disorder and even heresy that comes along with this gift. Um, so we have, to be, we have to be careful. We have to beware when someone claims to speak for the Lord. And listen, let me just exhort you, Christians, when someone is always talking as if they have an ongoing, running conversation with God, the Lord told me to say this, and God says this. Like, if they're on the walkie-talkie with God plan, um, you should be very suspicious about what that person is communicating. Because that's not the way that prophecy works. Everything that is said is first and foremost subject not to what I think God is saying, but to what I know he wrote in the Bible. So the vast majority of a speaker's content should come straight from this book. And if someone's always talking about how God told them that and God told them that and you need to do that, that's actually a distortion of how God reveals his will to you and me. 
Uh, the truth is there's no one else who has more access to truth than you or me. You don't have to go to any person who seems to have this super gift to hear from God. Uh, right here is the full and final authoritative revelation of God. Therefore, if someone claims to have a word from God or a message or some sort of a whatever, that is under the authority of God's word. But it's also, it's required to be presented clearly by the Bible and to be evaluated under church authority. And oftentimes speakers who are just shooting out one thing after another are not striving to be clear, nor are they placing what they're saying under the authority of a local church. And those are big warning signs. If they can't say clearly what they think God is prompting them to say, and it doesn't line up with reality, and they're not saying it under church authority, it's to be disregarded. We have to be careful, we have to beware, because many people will deceive us. So when you think God is talking, and, and this goes for you too, if you think God's telling you to say something, be very, very careful. It is a big deal to claim to speak for God Almighty, and He will hold us accountable for every careless word. So be very careful with that. Okay, so the church was established with apostles who were eyewitnesses of the resurrection, and prophets who spoke a message from God. And then third, jot this down, evangelists. Evangelists shared the gospel with boldness. And they were devoted to winning others to faith in Christ. Evangelism takes many forms, and evangelists use many methods. But this is a key gift that still operates today in full force that's essential to building up the church. Philip, the evangelist in the New Testament, was the person who was called the evangelist, and he just loved traveling around and sharing the gospel everywhere he went. Paul also said to Timothy, do the work of the evangelist. So you could be a pastor who is expected to do evangelism, but that might not mean that you have the gift. And that's something that's really important to recognize. There are people who have a tremendous evangelism gift, and then there are others like us who are just expected to learn how to grow in that. And the church is strengthened when evangelists help the church to grow. Uh, Apollos was a great evangelist in the book of Acts. He demonstrated the uh, apologetic form of evangelism where he was open to public debate and he defended the faith using the scriptures and none could speak against his arguments. So that's an example of a rational discourse form of defending his faith. Some great evangelists today would include Greg Laurie. Here's a picture of a Greg Laurie crusade. Uh, he's done many, many crusades all around the world. And he did one in Chicago several years ago that many of our people went to. But one of his big ones was at Cowboy Stadium, right, in Arlington, Texas. 90,000 people came out to one event. And 350,000 people watched online. It was unbelievable, the power of this man using his gift for the gospel. And uh, as of 2000. 16, they had added up about 5 million people had either attended uh, a, a rally or watched a rally, and 450,000 people that they know of have been saved through his ministry. Wow, that is a powerful, powerful gift. And, and Greg Laurie surrendered that gift to the Lord, and he is using his gift to build up the church. Billy Graham, of course, is probably the most famous evangelism in our day. And here's a picture of Billy Graham from what was uh, his biggest crusade. He did an event in um, Seoul, uh, and uh, five million people came out to a, to a multi-day event in, in Seoul. Millions and millions of people coming out to hear the gospel, and this evangelist is using his gift to share the good news. 
Um, Billy Graham went home to be with the Lord February of 2018. And then Ravi Zacharias is another famous evangelist. He just went home to be with the Lord uh, in May, a couple months ago. But here's a picture of Ravi at a passion conference in Atlanta. And he had a gift for connecting with the younger generation, with academics and thinkers on campuses all around the world. Uh, and it's amazing to see these people strengthening the church and using their gift. We partner with an organization named the National School Project, and you might say to yourself, I can't do what Billy Graham does. Well, we can't do that, but we can do something. So this organization, NSP, helps our high schoolers and local high schoolers all around the country get the gospel into their schools through gospel rallies. We've got a few pictures of NSP doing, you know, they just go right into the gym and they'll do a rally with high schoolers and share the gospel with them. And here's another picture right in the cafeteria. Sometimes during lunchtime, they can just share the gospel uh, in the public schools if the students lead that. So evangelism is a huge part of how Jesus started building the church and how he's building the church today. You could write this down. All Christians must share their faith, but some are gifted. Some are gifted in how they share their faith. And if you feel like you have the gift of evangelism, it's really important that you, you realize that other people might not be that as courageous and confident as you. So you might need to grab some people and say, hey, come on, let's go share our faith. I want to show you how it's done. If you feel like you don't have the gift of evangelism, if you feel like it's terrifying to the thought of going out and sharing your faith with other people, guess what? Find somebody who's got the gift of evangelism and just, just tell them, I, I really don't know what I'm doing and I'd love for some tips. You know, I'd love to see how you do it. That's how the church gets stronger in this gift. So number one, the apostles were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Number two, prophets spoke a message from God. Number three, evangelists shared their faith with boldness. Number four, jot this down, shepherds taught and led local churches. Shepherds. And the word for pastor, elder, overseer, those are used interchangeably in the New Testament. So um, I assume that this means those local shepherds who were put in charge of caring for the flock. Now, it could be stretched to include deacons who also ministered to the needs of people, but those who found themselves in shepherding roles for local congregations. So you have shepherds who taught and led local churches. And if you read through the book of Acts, they traveled through every town uh, and they appointed elders. They went back and they put people in charge and they said, all right, you pastors are in charge of this congregation. Um, and so Titus was the same thing. He said, I, I left you there to appoint elders in every town. And so that's the way that they did it. And these pastors, these shepherds, these elders, these overseers, these deacons, they really carried the local weight of building up these congregations for Christ. That's how the church was built. It's still how the church is built today. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit has made you overseers of the flock, which means even today, the Holy Spirit is raising up elders and deacons and staff pastors, youth pastors, worship pastors all over the world to care for the flock of God. When Jesus restored Peter, you know, he knew Peter was going to go on to heal people and to confront the rulers of the day. And, and yet, what did Jesus say to Peter? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. And it's a shepherd's heart that ultimately leads to the building up of the congregation of God. So shepherds um, lead local churches. In our church, elders watch over doctrine and church discipline and the direction of the flock. Our deacons handle benevolence and uh, other things, building and some of the budgeting. And it's a great honor and a great calling to serve in these roles. 
You know, when my wife and I, Lauren, first got married, we did not see ministry in our future. Uh, we, we didn't get married knowing that I was going to be a pastor, that she was going to be on staff as a children's and women's ministry director. Like, it was laughable if you had told me that before we got married. Like, not even like, oh, I can see that. Like, no way. So when I became a pastor part-time in 2002, full-time in 2004, I didn't know anything. But I knew that the Spirit was calling me to do it. And that was enough. I'm going to show you a few pictures of young Ryan. Like when I first became a pastor. Check it out. This is youth pastor Ryan at a camp. Wearing camo because I was about to go play capture the flag. And if I got caught, they could throw me into a pond. So this, I was called into youth ministry. Here's another picture. Uh, This was like for our church directory way back in the day. We had one kid, right? And uh, youth pastor Ryan Hall. (laughs) I mean, it it really is unbelievable because there was nothing in my life that was aiming me for ministry. It was just the Spirit of God that gifted me in that area, called and prompted me to become a pastor. And at first it was like, no way. And then it was like, maybe. And then it was like, this is what God's calling us to do. Okay, here, here we go. And it's a complete and total honor now I mean, the biggest honor that God could give somebody to say, look, I'm going to put you in charge of some of my sheep, you know, uh, grow them up and get them ready for glory. That is so humbling and so amazing. And here's the thing, God does it. God does it. And I feel honored to be a pastor here. Uh, What a great responsibility it is, which is why we need a team. And we've got amazing elders who, who spend so much time with sheep, caring for them, listening to them, learning about their problems, helping them to untangle some knots. Our deacons are constantly connecting with people to make sure that their needs are met. We've got amazing staff pastors here who who lead God's people into worship. And Pastor Thomas, who just arrived up at Silverbird Family Camp last week, he was getting to know all the students and he's building all those relationships. Hey, listen, this is how Jesus builds his church. He sends people who are going to care for the flock of God. That's how he did it then. That's how he does it now. Shepherds taught and led local churches. Shepherds also protect the church. We are commanded to protect the doctrine of the church and to ward off those who would divide the church. So there are wolves who will come in. Paul warned the, the Ephesian elders, actually, in the book of Acts, wolves, fierce wolves, will rise up from among your ranks to devour the flock. So one of the other things, you might think, oh, being a youth pastor sounds great. I get to wear a camel and run around. Yeah, but we also have to hunt and kill wolves, right? Here's a picture of a wolf. And yeah, that, <laughs> that's very scary. And what do elders do? We protect the church against wolves. People who will come into the congregation to devour it. They might not even know when they get here that that's what's going to happen. But they fall into Satan's trap. They either have bad doctrine or they become dividers. And suddenly it's our responsibility to guard and protect the sheep from that. So shepherds, they taught, they led local churches. Evangelists shared the gospel with boldness. Prophets spoke a message from God. Apostles were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Number five, write this down. Teachers shared biblical truth in a compelling manner. And we're going to skip through this one because it's kind of combined with number four. Shepherds and teachers, um, you know, the pastors taught usually, and there were some others who would teach too, but they're, they're virtually synonymous. So they shared biblical truth in a compelling manner. And I'm sure that you could tell me some teachers, some, some teachers or authors who wrote books or shared devotions or, or, or spoke at a conference 
who greatly impacted your faith. I mean, who just, the way they spoke somehow, they just showed you great things about Jesus and got you fired up about your faith. And look, that's not just a natural ability. That's a spirit-given gift from Christ to build up his church. Um, When I went to Bible college, Moody Bible Institute, my professors were amazing. They loved Jesus and they loved the word of God. And they shaped my heart and my mind to be able to teach God's word effectively. They helped me grow. I, I remember one of my professors who, who just, his prayer life, the way he prayed and what he taught about that transformed my prayer life. Uh, and then another one of my professors, just the way he illustrated the text and brought in contemporary things was really impactful for me. Another professor just showed how we could connect the biblical truth to today's world. And I had one more professor who just had a love for this city and the poor, and it just, it just spilled out of him, and he taught me to have that love as well. And so I'm sure that you have teachers who have skillfully, wisely, accurately taught God's word in a way that, in, that increased your faith. And the church needs those people. We're also warned in the New Testament, uh, James made it very clear, brothers, not many of you should suppose to be teachers, right? Because we will incur a stricter judgment. So again, just like I said with prophecy, watch out for those who, who are teachers or who are bloggers or who are authors, but their lifestyle or their beliefs do not line up with God's word. It's very clear in the scripture. You will know them by their fruit. If there's a discrepancy between what they're saying and writing and how they're living, we have to beware for those teachers. So, okay, we've got teachers, we've got shepherds, evangelists, prophets, we've got apostles. And then number six, write this down, saints. And that's all of us. That's everyone. It says in verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. What? What? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So this is why he equips these leaders and teachers. Why? To equip the saints to do what? To serve Christ. That's the chain reaction, right? Spiritual leadership leads to people who are serving Christ, who find their spiritual gifts, and who get to work expanding the kingdom of the Lord. That's how it's supposed to work. So saints, what do they do? They gather, grow, and serve together. Uh, We serve Christ by sharing in the duties of worship and prayer and uh, also going on mission trips and taking up offerings and hosting groups in our houses. There's so many ways that we build up community. We have so many roles where people work for Christ. You know, I I right now commend our relaunch team that's been gathering for several weeks to prepare the church to reopen. And all that hard work comes to fruition today. Also, we've got in our kids ministry team leaders who are getting ready to offer backyard Bible clubs because we can't do VBS this year. So they met recently to get ready for that outreach. Um, And these are people who are saying, hey, we want to gather, we want to grow, we want to serve together. That's how Jesus builds his church. Hey, this is how Jesus demonstrates his glory on earth. When we, his saints, gather and continue to meet. When we together grow in love and faith and serve others. Uh, When we work for him. This is the way it's supposed to work. And when you see in the scripture how Jesus builds his church up, that should make you say, wow, I want to be a part of that. Jesus is building a kingdom on earth full of heaven's glory. Count me in. Sign me up. Send me out. Like, give me a job. 
You might want a small job or a big job or a meeting job, whatever it is. If he is the high king of heaven, your heart should leap out of your chest and say, here am I, send me. That should be the response from a child of God saved by grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. And hey, we are entering a new era of church right now. Let's face it, the world has changed. And we need men and women, young and old, to see the great opportunity of serving Jesus Christ. To band together, to use our spiritual gifts for his glory, to, to grow strong and healthy together as a body, uh, to discover our spiritual gifts, to surrender our lives, to sacrifice for him, and then to go and reach the nations. Jesus is building his church He's filling it with glory and he's using ordinary people like you and me to reach the nations and to reach our own backyard. Hey, this sermon is called How to Build a Glorious Church. And the answer is you and me. You and me. When Christ gets a hold of our heart and when he fills us with his spirit and shows us our assignment and we work together, we are unstoppable. And so let's get to work for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer right now. Jesus, it is truly an honor to serve you. We thank you for the gospel, for the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the love that you showed us at the cross, for the great victory that you won over sin and death and Satan, for the promised glory that you give us forever in paradise. And right now, I just pray that you would fill our church with faith, with love, and with power. Gift us, O Lord, young and old, to serve you effectively. And Lord, assign us wherever you would have us connect, wherever you would have us go, whoever you would have us serve and shepherd, I pray that you would just pour out your spirit of glory. Uh, Lord, I just pray that you would give us in our congregation a heart to work, to work hard, to present ourselves as workmen approved for you, the great high and holy king. As we shake off, Lord, the sluggishness from being away from each other for months, I pray that you would just energize us again and revive our faith, our love for one another, and give us a spirit of endurance. And Lord, I pray that we would reach people with the gospel of Christ and that lives would be transformed forever and ever. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.